Um, hello, everybody, and welcome to the Little Fellow Sports Podcast. And as you can see today, we've got a very, very special guest with us. We've got Jared Timber, who is obviously a cricket writer, who's a cricket analyst, who's a uh, what else? He's a podcaster. He's a he he's a man who's done a lot of things in cricket, and definitely one of the guys who I've looked up to for many years, actually. Um, I've been obviously following cricket for for many years together, and Kimber is one. Mr. Kimber is one of the most interesting article writers you can see there always, and it's a pleasure to have you on, Mr. Kimber. Hope you're doing good. No problems. I don't think you have to call me Mr. Kimber. Even my father doesn't go by Mr. Kimber. <laughs> all right, all good then. All right, so let's just start. So, um, of course, cricket's what connects us basically. So, growing up, um, how as a as a child, how was how did cricket first come about to you, and when did you take up the sport, basically? Uh, my my father was a club cricketer, um, and so I was I was with him uh, from I don't know a week and a half old at his first game, I suppose. Uh, so cricket was always in my life. So it's I don't have that big origin story that other people have. It's just it it never occurred to me that other people weren't involved in cricket every day that every day of their life. All right. So um, growing up, did you play cricket in any form? Yeah, I played club cricket and I um, uh, played a little bit of representative cricket. Uh, I wasn't particularly good. I was basically most of my skills uh, were fielding um, or uh, captaincy. And uh, they don't generally promote you uh, if you're good at those two things. So uh, I'm a proper all-rounder in that there's nothing on a cricket field I can't do. But there's also nothing on a cricket field I can do particularly well. That's not too bad, I guess. Um, so, okay, of course. Um, you started working with cricket with Crick Info, right? If I'm not wrong, or were you working as a person, or did you have a blogs as such beginning, starting off? No, I started with a blog, uh, Cricket with Balls was my blog, um, and that started in uh, 2007, just before the World T20, the first World T20, I believe, and um, we we certainly it was it was a weird blog. Uh, I was writing it in a character, so I didn't really expect it to go anywhere. Um, I was writing a novel at the time, so I wrote it in the same character as the novel, but people seemed to like it a lot, and so it went on and on and on. Um, and then uh, and then it was actually the Wisdom Cricketer at the time, which is now the Cricketer magazine, who um, they had a deputy editor there called Ed Craig who was reading my blog, and he was just like, have you ever thought about being a cricket writer? And I'll be honest, I hadn't, which is a bit silly thinking back, but never really occurred to me. And, uh, and so I started writing about cricket, well, semi-professionally at first and then professionally. And uh, I think, I can't remember when I started working for Crick Info. I might have written a couple of pieces in 2009 or maybe, maybe 2010 I might have started with them. So um, I've basically been blogging for three years before then um, and written for a bunch of different magazines and online publications. And then uh, uh, I got my chance with Crick Info and, uh, you know, sadly, sadly for them, they couldn't find anyone better at the time. I mean, growing up as a late 90s kid, obviously, Cricket Info was the hub for any cricket fan to go up and, I mean, follow cricket, read articles about it. And there was a lot of interesting things in Cricket Info. And honestly, I'm not even telling just because I have you here, but generally, one of the one of the most interesting parts was always your articles. And one of the things I wanted to ask you was, during your time in Cricket Info, you had the show called Polite Inquiries. It's definitely one of Cricket Info's trademark shows. And right now, we've obviously got George Dobell and... Uh, when she was there, um, I think uh, uh, Felinda Merrill also was doing it. But uh, Polite Inquiries started off with you, right? So how, how what was the idea behind the show and what exactly made you start the show? I think you just said Palinda F 
Merrill then instead of Melinda Farrell. And can I just say oh, that that is all me and George are going to call her now from here on in. So thank you so much for that gift that you didn't mean. Did I mean? Uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I, uh, I no, no, it's great. It's the best thing um, that's happened to me today. Um, I, I I started with Cricket Invoke with video. So we had a show called Two Pricks at the Ashes, which obviously we couldn't use that title when we went to Cricket Info. So we called it the, uh, Chuck Fleetwood Smiths or the Two Chucks. And that did really well. But basically, Crick Info weren't ready for video when we started. I think I was their second ever video hire. And they weren't ready for it. And two trucks actually took a lot of work and needed a lot of backing because there was two of us. And they didn't really back the person that I was working with, Sam. And so he sort of left and went off to essentially make our film um, at that stage. And it was kind of weird because I was the video guy who'd been hired for video. And then I became the writer. And that was never my main job. In fact, when I started, they were like, just settle down on the words, give a small video. Um, and then over time, I became, I became, you know, well, essentially the, the global writer. So almost like the chief writer of the site um, for, for a big period there. And I wasn't doing any video. And so rightfully, they came back to me and said, look, you're going to have to do some video, come up with an idea. And I think it was the 13, 14 mega ashes. And we, I had no ideas. I just couldn't think of anything to do. And so if you go back and you watch the first test, I was doing videos. I think it was called Hotel Toilet Diaries or something. And I would record in the hotel um, bathroom um, myself talking about the play. And we would stick it up on the site. And it was terrible. And it didn't work. And I couldn't come up with good ideas. And uh, it, w it wasn't put together. And then I knew I was going out. And, and so Crick Info was a bit like, you must be able to come up with something better than this. And I said, look, George used to be a radio DJ. Uh, I'm used to presenting in front of camera. Why don't we just come up with a show where we just get our, or the people who follow us on Twitter up to ask us questions? We had this. I had this idea that our people during the play, day's play would ask us questions on Twitter that were actually quite clever and would work better than doing it from the ESPN account. If you got the ESPN account, everything would be like, why aren't you talking about Virat Kohli? And, uh, you know, uh, I'm trying to think, was it 2013, 2014, you know, uh, surely Alistair Cook isn't as good as Sunil Gavaska or whatever. It, it would be that sort of stuff. And why aren't you talking about Pakistan? We knew if we did it on our account, we would get people who were watching up with us and, and reading our stuff. So they'd get what we wanted. And also, and I knew the way that me and George worked. There's no way at the end of the day's play, having watched the whole day's play, George having done all of his work, me having done all my work, we would be able to script something. I knew that wouldn't work. So what I knew was if we cheated and we made the audience script it, we would actually be able to react to that in the same way that we would when at the end of the day's play, we were doing that in the bar with each other. Do you know what I mean? Having dinner with people, you know, uh, for that tournament, I think my, uh, for that series, I think my dad was with us. He'd be asking us these sorts of questions as well. So I knew the basic principle would work. So what I needed was a show that was cheap, a show that we could film ourselves, and a show that would show me and George in the best possible light without us doing any extra work. And that's what Polite Inquiries was. That's why other people have struggled at times with Polite Inquiries. It's because it wasn't set up for other people. It was literally set up for me and George in our Twitter feed. And it took Mel a long time to, I mean, Mel's, uh, now what are we calling her? Felinda. Felinda. It took Felinda a long time to come up with her own style. And her and Fedos ended up doing it quite well. But we would bring in Andy Zaltzman, and he's a professional comedian, and he would struggle with it. Um, you, you would bring in someone like Sid Monger, who's a brilliant talker on cricket, 
who would struggle with it. Not everyone got it. Bryden, who's gone on to be a TV presenter, you know, and a, and a, and a quiz master, even he struggled with polite inquiries because it was so dev devised around me and George's personalities. And Crick Info never got it, to be fair. Like, they tried to cancel it a bunch of times. And even now, people still ask us to bring it back. It's such a popular show. But it really, it works in such an odd way. Um, and it really, it, it doesn't work particularly well when it wasn't, especially for the first few years, when it wasn't me or George, because it only existed because of me and George. And so it was, it was a way of basically having a conversation with cricket fans in a video that worked quite well. And we could make fun of people and we could make fun of each other. Um, and it was, it was a lot of, it was a lot of fun to make, even if every single episode we were so tired and so defeated by life that all we wanted to do was go and have a drink and eat some food. I mean, it makes sense. What you're saying is probably it was in sync with what you guys thought and what you guys wanted to do, right? More than someone else. That's why it probably didn't suit the other guys, whoever tried to uh, yeah. emulate you after that. It, 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 the problem with, with with my role with Crick Info is I came up with a lot of very good video shows, but they only really worked around things that I could do or that I could or that my friends could do. So the first one was with Sam Collins. Second one was with George DeBell. The third one was with Andy Zaltzman. I knew what those guys could do, and I knew the way that I talked with them. And I could create a show around those things. The, the problem for Crick Info was that most of our writers didn't have the nat they didn't feel natural in front of camera. camera. And so it was hard finding people who you could sort of do that with. And so with, the, with, with Zoltzman and George, they're natural, and Sam before them, they were natural people. And the, the problem for Crick Info was they're like, well, it's great. You're creating all these successful shows, but you have to be on them all. And it was, it's a fair point. And, you know, eventually it got to a point where I started, I stopped creating those shows. And, and for a long time, um, the video sort of stagnated because uh, no one else was doing that. So uh, I, I'm very good at creating video programs for myself. I'm not particularly good at creating them for other people. Makes sense. You talked about Andy Zaltzman. I wanted to ask one specific question about you. Obviously, he's got a great sense of humor. How much of his how much of his humor have you taken in? Like, do you in your shows or whatever you've gone on to do after that, after meeting him? So you have to understand that George is a funnier person than Andy Zaltzman. I hope that doesn't offend Zaltzman. Um, Zaltzman is a brilliant writer. That's Zaltzman's skill. Uh, you know, joke writing, which is the I think the hardest form of writing. Um, that's where Zoltzman's skill is. If, if Zoltzman was hanging around with you, he's a he's a naturally funny person, but he's not an hilarious person. Do you know what I mean? Like, I, And I've got, uh, over the years, I've had a lot of friends who are stand-up comedians. They are very rarely the funniest person when you go out to hang out with them. What I learned from Zoltzman is the sort of the structure of, of, of joke writing to a certain point. Um, and also, you know, and, 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 and also from George as well, but th that ability to, once you've worked it, my biggest problem is that once I, I always want to create the new next creative new thing. <laughs> so I don't like rehashing my same work over and over again. And that leads me to a lot of unemployment opportunities generally. Um, whereas what Zoltzman and Dobell are very good at is going, this is my thing. I'm going to make it slightly different each time, but this is my thing. This is my joke. This is my intro. This is how I am going to do this thing. Um, but, but because I'm going to deliver it in this way or write it in a certain way, I'm going to I'm going to make it work. And I think that's what essentially I've learned from Zoltzman over the years is that it, you don't have to keep recreating things. And I think for me, I didn't come from an artistic background, and I, you know I didn't grow up with a lot of people who were um, 
incredible artists or uh, writers or, or comedians or those sorts of people. So for me, it was like making those sorts of things was creating something new every time. And now you realize that, you know, uh, Jerry Seinfeld essentially came up with one good TV idea and one good stand-up idea and built a, an entire career around that. And now I understand the genius of that. And I think working with Zoltzman, I certainly understood that you, you can, once you're very good with a, a kind of a structure or a theme, you can continue with that. But the creativity is finding new ways to, to use it. So I think that's probably what I learned from working with Andy Zoltzman. And, you know, how, how lucky I am to be able to work with him uh, and some of the writers we've had at Crick Info, you know, people like Usman and Fernando and, and Bryden uh, back in the day and those sorts of people, um, not to mention, you know, editors like David Hopps and Sam Abel. Like if you're not always learning from those sorts of people, you know, was it Crick Info's probably had two or three incredible eras. You probably had the first era when you had the amateurs coming through and they were, they were creating stuff on computers that, you know, they basically invented Twitter and didn't realize it because they wanted cricket scores. And then you had that first wave of writers coming through, you know, um, Usman Sami Adim and Rahul Bhattacharya and many other guys who came through at that point of time. And then you probably had my era come through of, you know, um, George and Fidel um, um, Bryden and um, Brettig and uh, Fidos and those sorts of people all came through at a, at a you know, we're all, uh, Islam, we're all sort of slightly different levels, Monger and, and Charter was probably there um, slightly earlier. So if you're not learning from all those people, you know, you, you're you're missing out if you think you know what is right and what is wrong generally you're an idiot i mean like you said probably two or three years early 2000s as you mentioned where cricket info was just about building up to being this worldwide platform and then to the 2000s period where it genuinely started booming right yeah um, and you you actually mentioned one thing um you said i don't like to stick to one thing i try to move from one thing to the other you've been a cricketer i mean you've been a cricket writer you've been a podcaster as you said you're a video maker you're you've you've, you've made a movie you're an analyst for a team. What 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 do you think pushes you to try different things? Like so flexible, and because one thing isn't necessarily related to the other. I know if you know cricket, doesn't mean you can be an analyst. It doesn't mean you can be a writer. It doesn't mean you can be a podcaster. But it's it's something you've done, right? All of them things. Yeah, I think a, a big thing with me is that thing we go back to before of that creativity. So I'm always looking to create different things. Um, and that that is within me. Even if I can see the, the genius of other people, sometimes I just can't help but pushing that. I think also I get very bored. Um, you know, I did cricket with balls for a long time. But once I had done it well, if I can't think of a way to change it into what I want it to be, that's it cricket with balls disappears and then I go to Crick Info and you know I master uh, you know the sort of match day analysis piece then I sort of get really good at long form writing then I get really good at feature long form writing once I've done that I'm like okay what's next and and that is sort of how I go over and over again and you know, maybe it goes back to me being a cricketer and being very good at many different skills of cricket, but not being particularly good at any. But that's obviously there's something within my psyche that if you're just like our opening bowler hasn't turned up today, I'm like, I'm going to work this out. Give me the new ball. I'm going to work out how to get wickets with the new ball bowling seam up today. Uh, the wicket keeper's not here. I can do that. I used to do that when I was young. It, and it's the same sort of thing of you know taking different challenges within the work. And, uh, you know, I, I did a podcast. I think I, I probably had one of the first big successful cricket podcasts back in 2008, uh, which was me on my own. And then me and Gideon Haig did another podcast after that, maybe 2010, 2011, 2011. 2012. Uh, Andy Zoltzman then came on. 
then the next time I went back to cricket podcast, I was like, I could have got one of my famous friends on. <laughs> I probably could have convinced Gideon to come back on or, uh, uh, you know, or got Andy to come back on, even if it was just once a month again or, or someone else or, or, or George or whoever it was or Vish. But I was like, do you know what I really like to do? I really like to do two different podcasts of, of the kind of podcasts I listened to. One was I wanted a story-based podcast of literally getting people on who who could tell a story or ha who had a great story. So then that's Red Inca. So now I'm doing that podcast. And then the other one was I really wanted to do a story-based podcast that was narrative, that I could write and that I could do something on. And I was like, I don't know if I can do this. But I'm going to work it out and I'm going to go through with it. And I've got a great producer, Nick McCorriston, and we go and we put that together. And then I was like, I want to do something a bit more fun. I'm doing a lot of serious stuff. You know, what can I do? And, you know, me and Arya Yuyetsu, who, who worked for Crick Info for years, we always had this great relationship and he was begging me to go to YouTube. And I was like, I'm not going to be one of those dull people who sits in front of a camera on YouTube and says something for two minutes. Uh, and then, you know, or if worse for an hour and a half, like some of them do. And I was like, I did that. I was on YouTube back in 2010 in 10 years time. If I haven't got any better at what I'm producing on YouTube, I don't want to be involved in me and him kept coming up with different. And, and then eventually, you know, now we're at these video essays and what I can do with them. I'm, I'm able to do stuff with those video essays that I couldn't do with written essays that I can't do with a documentary because it takes too long that I can't do with a podcast because I can't show people things. And that's kind of, that's how I do things. And, and, you know, if you, all those different things, it's the same with being an analyst for a cricket team. I didn't really know I could do it. I knew that teams thought I could do it because they were offering me jobs, but I was like, okay, I want to do that. I'm going to push myself and learn what it is to be an analyst and how can I help those sorts of things. And the first team I worked for was a disaster, St. Lucia, you know, a, a terrible situation to go into. I ended up becoming general manager after seven games. It was just, you know, a terrible, terrible environment. But it was also one of the most fulfilling things I've ever done in my life. And that's kind of what I like to do. I like to just sort of drop myself into something crazy and then just see if how, how I can do it. So, you know, I, it's the same with commentating on radio. I didn't know if I could commentate on radio. I'll give it a go. And then TalkSport come to me and they're like, we want you to kind of be like the scorer, but not the scorer. And we want you to tell stories and funny joke and make the odd funny joke. But we also want you to do advanced analytics. Can you do that? Like, I have no idea if I can do that, but put me on air and I'll do the first couple of series. And then if you think I'm no good, you can, you can find me. And it's, that kind of stuff I really, really enjoy. And it all comes from writing, when I, whether I'm, even when I'm being a general manager of a cricket team. Everything comes from writing. I start there. Okay, this is what I want to do. This is how I want to do it. Now I'm going to start doing some writing and learn what I'm going to do. So it all comes from that very basic thing of, of writing. And I just keep throwing things at a wall and doing different things because I have fun with them um, and I enjoy them. <laughs> Makes sense. Um, talking about crazy things, I wanted to ask you, I can't not ask you about the movie you made, The Death of the Gen Gentleman. You made it with Sam Collins, right? So yeah. what was the inspiration behind the movie? What instigated you rather? What instigated you to make such a movie? Taking well, you, on the big three. Well, you like this. I mean, it started with boredom again. It, it literally did. If um, We'd been doing two chucks for a little while and I knew, I, I me and Sam knew we could do a lot more. And once we once we had we could do two chucks in our sleep, we both got bored of it. Sounds very similar to me when it comes to that sort of stuff, which is probably why we could never work together forever because we're both floating off and going in different directions. Whereas me and George could do 
is you know george would do polite inquiries forever as long as he got paid for it and um and i didn't bug him too much with it so you know me and sam were a bit like that and we're like okay we've done this and sam's just like we have to make a documentary and i was the filmmaker out of the two of us at that stage had studied film had made short documentaries and i was like mate you have to know making a documentary is not a small thing and i kept saying no for a little while even though i knew he was right and then eventually i just said to him look if we're going to make it there's only two issues one is the future of test cricket and the other one is um uh match fixing i said we never get we might never get another chance to make another documentary and we quite rightfully thought for our first documentary going into the world of match fixing would just be hard we're learning how to make a documentary um you know i'd never made a feature documentary before uh we didn't really know and sam didn't know what he was doing at all though it turned out he was an incredible natural producer but he still had to learn the basics uh and so we went for that one i mean weirdly enough that it ended up being about corruption in cricket more than the future of test cricket we almost ended up at match fixing anyway well thanks to shrinivasan we did end up at match fixing. <laughs> so it was it was a bit of a weird sort of full circle uh that that had but it was for me uh, it was the chance to do something bigger and and better. And it may be the only feature documentary I make that ever gets shown. I've made another one for Crick Info on the, on the history of Crick Info. I don't think that will ever be shown by ESPN. Um, and I'll never make a documentary where I am that heavily invested from, you know, I mean, we had half the crew staying with us, uh, with me and my wife for a long period of time. Uh, you know, me and Sam both lost money on making that film. So, I don't know if I'd ever get involved in that. I'm, I would happily write another documentary for someone and certainly would help plan and maybe um, uh, be in the edit suite for another one, but I'd never do that again. So it was great to be able to do that and to put everything in. And it was a very weird time in my life. Makes sense. Was it daunting at any point taking on the big three, the likes of Srinivasan, Giles Clark, the guys you mentioned there? Yeah, I mean, Srinivasan was one of the most... He was one of the most... I'm trying to think of the exact right word, but he was, he was bone chilling. Uh, he was very quietly spoken, but you had this feeling that he was such an intense person that you did not want to mess with. Giles Clark was a bit different because Giles Clark was loud and a bit buffoonish. And you kind of, I dealt with more Giles Clarks in my life. Uh, Giles Clark would try and bully you and make you feel like an idiot. And yeah. People, I didn't finish high school and came from a poor background. People have been trying to do that to me my whole life. It just made me want to make them look like more of an idiot. Srinivasan was a bit more like there was an intensity to him where you just went, this person is not to be trusted and is will do everything he can to ruin you if he has to. Uh, the, the biggest one was when we went to record the documentary in Dubai and we'd like just went into the hotel and started filming. <laughs> and obviously that that became a bit of a moment in the film. And like having to say to my wife, these guys, we know these guys have tried to ruin people's careers before. They're going to try and ruin my career. Can they ruin, you know, can your job be <laughs> ruined by this? Because if that's the case, we'll have to stop now. But if not, I'm just going to keep pushing. And then having to ring Samba Bal and go, just so you know, um, boss, I've just been kicked out of um, <laughs> the ICC's hotel room, uh, hotel um, uh, complex. So uh, I don't know if that will affect my Crick Info job, but you guys should know that this has happened. Uh and they did come for our jobs and they did take my accreditation and they started a rumor about us and they tried to get an article printed uh, that was um, libelous uh, about us. So they did come for us. But, you know, and there's a certain point where I mean, there was a moment, I think it was when we were in the hotel and it was me and Sam 
and nothing was going on. And it's just, it's such a weird thing. You're in this hotel and you're sitting there. No one from the ICC wants to tell you to leave because they know you've got a camera. But they're also like, why are these two guys here? They haven't been allowed in. And they're having their meeting behind. And Sam just sort of turns to me and says, if we hadn't have watched all those action films when we were young, would we even be here? And it is, it's a bit of a game, if you know what I mean, to you. And it's not a game to them. To them, it's really, they're just like, how dare you come to us? And how dare you do all this? But to us, it's a bit more like, this is fun and this is weird. And I wonder if we can find out what hotel we're in. And oh my God, they're taking our accreditation. And now we, you know, when you've got nothing to lose and you work out, you've got nothing to lose. And the worst thing that could have happened is they would have banned me from press accreditation for the rest of my life. And I would have still been able to watch cricket and I would have been able to make fun of them even more. Um, it's, it, you know, you just like, ah, oh, let's go for it. Let's see what happens. And that's kind of what it was. I mean, it's probably an all to lose for them and nothing to lose for you, right? Yeah. I mean, looking back on it, but that's not how they frame it. And that's not how they make you feel. Uh, they make you feel like there's a lot of pressures, uh, not right. just from from the boards but from random people i remember one of one of the cricket writers in the uk was saying what happens if you fail and the film isn't any good and we're like and me and sam are like okay we failed many times before i mean that may happen i mean you're gonna remember three years in to saying we were gonna make the film we still didn't have a film everyone thought we were a failure anyway and then a year later we've got you know we're standing in front of an audience with 600 people at a sold out cinema showing do you know what i mean like what a remarkable turnaround it was but i have failed so much in my life it's just that people hardly see the failures they hardly remember them so my thing is just you just keep going and then occasionally you'll get something right was that moment when it all clicked and you finally got it out was that one of the best moments of your career as such it, it, look, it was very weird. I mean, the first film showing we had was at Sheffield. So a famous documentary um, film festival. I th it was in the middle of the day. It wasn't a good showing. We got on the Sheffield bill late because our producer was a big, he basically forced us on. I think he might have co-created the, the film festival back in the day. And he was like, guys, this is a good film. I know we missed the deadline, but you have to trust us, put this on. There was a few cricket fans there, but mostly they were proper documentary fans. Maybe 100, 100 people in the cinema and we gave our speech at the start. We'd never given a speech at the start of a film, so we didn't know what to say, and it was a bit awkward. And I don't like watching the films at the, at the front. Like, I don't watch any film at the front. If I can't get a seat at the back, I feel awkward all the way through. There was no way I was going to watch my film in the front row. So I went all the way to the back, and this other guy came in after I'd given, our, uh, I'd given the speech. So he came in a little bit after, maybe sitting in front of me, in the second, the second row back. And the whole film, this guy just laughed at every joke, he got angry when he had to get angry. And and I was just like, he wasn't a cricket fan. He was just a guy that came to see a documentary. And as the film finished, I was one of the first ones to get up because I had to go back down and give, do a Q&A at the end of the film. And this guy stopped me. And he goes, do you know if the makers of the film are here? And I was just like, and, and someone else laughed because they obviously knew it was me who'd come up to sit next to them. And he, um, and before I could even say it, the people around us were like, you you know, you've just made his life. And he didn't realize what a big moment it was to me. I think I sent a message to Eddie Cowan afterwards. And I said, this is my boxing day. Like I wanted to make films my entire life and being able to do it. And then you make your first film and you're in the audience of it. And this guy doesn't know he's not the other people around me. I ignored all them because they knew that I'd made the film and they were going to have this one guy had no idea who I was and just absolutely loved this film. 
that meant more to me than being on stage with Michael Holding in front of 600 people or Lalit Modi in front of 600 people or having Gideon Hay give a speech about the film or Ian Chappell or, or any of those other people that did it because I had spent my whole life trying to make a film. You finally make it and the first time you watch it with an audience, one guy just gets it. That's 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 the moment for me. That was that was huge. That must have been a feeling. Um, obviously now, apart from the film, you've you've obviously started working with Scotland team right now as an analyst. Um, that's something not related to what you've done until that point, right? You've obviously done writing, producing, making movies, all that. But analysts, being an analyst, is completely different to what you've been doing so far. So, how much do you think an analyst can play a role, especially in T20 cricket, because? Primarily, you work on white ball, right? Because it's kind of known that white ball is where analysts have more have more more of an effect, right? Yeah, well, I mean, the game's shorter and the the moments are bigger, um, and it's more contained. We can learn more about it. Uh, I'd happily work on red ball. There's no reason to say that I couldn't work on red ball either. But yeah, I, I've never even I've never even worked in one day cricket. Um, sorry, just one second. I've only ever worked in um, in T20 cricket so far, so. Um, it all comes from the same place. So I, I kind of say, I kind of say to teams, don't think about it as some new fangled position, especially if you've never had one before. My job is, I, I said to Scotland, they said, what title do you want? I said, call me information officer if you want, because my job is to find things out and learn things and, and give it back to the people who need it. And when I work with, especially when I do consultancy with 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 teams, I basically say, I think of me like due diligence. It's my job to work out why these things are happening and how they're happening and how we can how they can shape us. And then it's your job to take what I've given you and make the team better and and all those sorts of things. So, a lot of it is no different than normal research I would do for an article. Realistically, the difference is the specifics of. If I'm writing an article, I'm not coming up with an actual plan to give a bowler. I'm not giving, coming up with an actual plan to give a captain. Uh, I don't have to give a speech to a bunch of professional cricketers <laughs> about my article um, and those sorts of things. But the very basic way that you look around it is not that much different. It's just taking it in slightly different areas. So for me, as I said before, everything comes from writing. So I want to write this thing. Um, we, sorry, well, I want to convince these people of this thing or I want to learn about this thing and then show these people what I have learned. This is what I do. The, the, other, the other parts of being an analyst that you learn over time is different people take information differently so that, uh, you know, not everyone is comfortable coming up to you, so you have to create an open environment. So I spend a lot of my time in hotel lobbies so the players will come past because they feel that's casual, um, okay. whereas I'm there... It's quite often very strategically knowing that they'll come past. Oh, what are you looking at now? Oh, it's funny you should say, because I was looking at this and it actually, I, your name came up in this and that sort of stuff. So all of it comes back to writing for me. Everything comes back to writing for me. I'm a writer first. Everything else is just an accident. Makes sense. Um, How how receptive did you find the players you worked with, with data, especially especially players who, who you can say are experienced players, because probably... 15 years ago, data wasn't as prevalent as it is right now, right? So guys who've been around the circuit for a long time probably won't adjust it or won't accept it too easily or too too readily, right? Yeah. Have you faced that scenarios? Older players quite often don't think you should even exist. Um, they like, I got here without you, so why would I need an analyst? Younger players think that you've always been there and they, 
they've never even thought that a year be- the year before you didn't your job didn't exist. So you have that spectrum. I think there's usually something that you can do. There's also little things that you can do for a player, like um, being. I'm not sure if I should name, but but when I worked with David Warner, there's not much I could tell David Warner because he knew his game really well. Uh, occasionally, I might be able to tell him something about the bowlers, but he's actually quite diligent at knowing a lot about the bowlers as well. But one, but little things too that where I there was things within our team at St Lucia where we might change, and I just said, look, we can make this change. But if we make this change, David, you're the best runner between wickets in world cricket. If we make this change, you may not. That 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 you may not be able to run as well between wickets. Him him being able to get that and think about that, he already knew he was a good runner between wickets, and he already understood that. But having someone like me being able to articulate that, and without him sounding like it's him talking himself up, made that conversation go easier. So sometimes it's just something as simple as that. And I'm sure Kyron Pollard, you know, who, who I've worked with as well, probably reads some of my articles now in a way that he probably didn't beforehand. And other players and coaches do, and some think I'm completely wrong, and some think I'm completely right. Sometimes it's one little thing that you say to a senior player, which doesn't seem like much, but actually helps them a lot. And they may not even remember that you've said it, but they changed their game. It doesn't matter to me if it's that or if it's completely overhauling a young player's game. You're just trying to work out how to make every single player that little bit better. And Nathan Lehman, who's you know the England analyst, he always used to say that Graham Swan didn't really need him. But he said, but if you're an international spinner who can average 27 with the ball and 25 with the bat and you're a great slip fielder, you probably don't need that much more help to begin with. So those sorts of things happen. And, you know, sometimes you get a player who is very senior, who, you know, someone like Sean Masood, who was 27 or 28 probably when I started, started working with him. He wanted to know everything. He's like, tear my game apart. Let's build my game back up together. And so sometimes you get that. And other times... You know, you get a player like George Munsey from Scotland who I played with. There's not much I need to tell George Munsey. I mean, one, one stage he said to me, what do you think I should do? I said, hit more sixes. And he's like, I already hit a lot of sixes. I said, hit more? That's that's all I've got for you. I think you've got a good game. And occasionally I'd say to him, Have you, this team is going to do that. And he goes, yeah, they've done that before. You don't need to go through it. Great. If you've already thought about that, my job here is done. Munsey, tick. <laughs> hit more sixes. Tick. <laughs> so, you know, that's how you do it. And it's no different, you know, I've worked a lot with writers over the years. Obviously, I have my own sports writing course, um, Fans with Laptops, if you want to Google it, uh, that, you that, that you know, and it's the same, you know, if I'm working with someone who's a really, really good writer, I'll probably only, you know, I do a lot of work with Tim Wigmore, you know, over the years. And with Tim Wigmore, it's one or two things that he just needs to hear those things from me, even though he knows them already, right? And with a young writer, I might have to deconstruct them from beginning to end. How do you get, you're here if you want to get to here, everything you're doing is wrong. You're not wrong. Your thought process is okay, but the way you're putting these pieces together doesn't work, and this is why. And it's exactly the same with the players. Makes sense. Obviously, one player reacts differently to another depending on their scenario, on their situation, how they look at the game as well. Completely yeah. makes sense. Talking about data, how do you see it evolve, especially in T20 cricket for the say next five years? Probably can't go too far ahead, but next five years? Yeah, we're, we're at a bit of a roadblock at the moment because not everyone has the Hawkeye stuff and that's the gold stuff i'm hoping someone buys hawkeye someone like dream 11 buys hawkeye data and makes it publicly accessible and then we have another big jump but at the moment crickviz and the other companies who have hawkeye are up here 
and the rest of us have ball by ball data in it down here. That's the jump that we need to make. That's what happened in baseball. And the problem is there's nothing wrong with Crickviz and the other companies who have access to that sort of stuff, but there's five of them or 10 of them working on it. Whereas baseball's big jump was from thousands of people working on this sort of stuff. And basketball's big jump was a similar thing. And I understand that teams and, and other people, you know, have proprietary needs and all that sort of stuff. But I don't care about that. I just want cricket to be better. I just want to know more. And so I want all that sort of information to go out. And, you know, I want to know what percentage of the time doing Bravo bowls and uh, a slow ball. And going forward, I want to know what percentage of the time he bowls a specific kind of slow ball if he has more than one. So those are the sorts of things that I want to get to. And that information we could get to. We're just not, we're not there yet. And that's where I want it to go to. And, um, you know, it will play a bigger part in, in, in these sorts of things. I think we've already worked out that matchup stuff doesn't work the way that we think it does. It doesn't work the way that baseball does. Uh, I don't push matchup stuff very much with, with teams unless there's an absolute red flag and there's a player who cannot handle a particular bowler or a particular kind of bowling just because I don't think it works as well as other people do. But all those sorts of things we're going to learn more and more on as we go on. Makes sense. Obviously, um, as you said, cricket, that hockey data is very important, right? Because clearly ball-by-ball -ball data is pretty straightforward and there's only so much you can go with ball-by-ball -ball data. With Hawkeye, as you can say, you can analyze couple of steps deeper than what you can with ball-by-ball -ball data. Yeah, I mean, if, if the difference is I can look at my data and I can say uh, that this right-hander is not very good when the ball spins away from him with leg spin and finger spin, right? But what I can't tell is that it's actually the ones that go straight on that are causing him the problem. Uh, so I might say to the guy, look, he can't handle it when the ball spins away from him and my spin is just jagging it away, whereas actually you want to jag two away and then ball one straight. That's the thing hawkeye can tell us that sort of thing uh also you know little things of uh it might be that a player is very good against leg spin uh, a left-hander is very good again against leg spin but actually it's because the team is, he's actually better when the ball spins away from him so he's actually better when the team's bowling wrong but all leg spinners ball wrong to him because they're used to bowling wrong to left-handed something along those sorts of lines anyway there are little shibboleths and, not shib shibboleths is the wrong words but yeah there are little minor things that you get from that uh and just basic things of uh we don't we don't because we don't have and unless we have a ball by, a, a tracking data i can't tell you if someone is good at facing 135 k's above my right arm seam is benny howell down at 72 miles an hour up to you know um sean tate at 97 miles an hour those are not the same species of cricketer so little things like that you know and and i think england have started to do that with uh well not with crickviz but with their data and nathan lehman although he's involved with crickviz as well is literally going I, th I think i'm right in saying this i think he told me this or i read it somewhere they're looking for nearest neighbors so they might say that they in their database they might say with jimmy anderson chris wokes um and vernon philander uh, all very similar bowlers. They release the ball from a similar height. It, it swings this much and it does these sorts of things. And they might say, well, our our, our bats, uh, you know, uh, this new guy has never faced our bowlers, but he has faced this guy and this guy is similar. And it might be the same with guys with low actions and all that sort of stuff. So they can get, that's the next step, which we, we're, again, uh, we're not going to have access to for a long time. But imagine being able to play around with that sort of stuff and have literally be like this guy averages 50 in test match cricket when the bowlers release from under eight foot but when they release from over eight foot he averages 15 
And this guy is a great batsman. And we have a guy, we have Billy Stanlake in the wings or, you know, um, Ashish Neera in the wings who can bowl at that height for a thing, you know. Maybe, you know, maybe those are the sorts of things we can start to get to, um, which we're not. Uh, and how much fun would that be? Makes sense. I mean, we've gone to a long, long, I mean, we've reached a long point in terms of data, but we've still got a lot more to go, right? In terms oh, of definitely. where we can look. Look, I mean, and also, your ball by ball data, there's not much we can do that we haven't already done because a lot of people, I think, have access to that now. And, you know, so you're now at the next bit where you want this bit of tracking. And then once we get past the, the ball tracking, the next thing is getting the sort of tracking that they have in baseball, which is, you know, the proper revolutions on the ball tracking and, and all those sorts of things um, that we need to get to. The super slow motion cameras. I wrote about this in a piece for Cricket Info recently. You know, there's just absolute shit tons that we can do with this this sort of information. You exactly. Know, you know, to yeah. be able to go to a slow ball bowler and go, your slow ball gets picked. But the reason it doesn't get hit is because you put this much revs on it. Can you put more revs on it? Can you sometimes put less revs on it? Is there a way to put revs on it end over end rather than side over side? All those sorts of things. We're not there yet. And it's fascinating what we'll be able to do next. And, you know, I'm a big basketball fan. And obviously I know some of the guys in baseball now because I've been writing about this in cricket. So they're keeping a bit of one eye on cricket in case there's something that they can learn now. Um, and, you know, Oh, the sorts of stuff that we can learn are just phenomenal. You know, there's a little thing in basketball that they, they started timing people's first steps because it's a really important thing. In fielding, that would be a really, really important thing to look at. And uh, uh, is, is a great fielder like Clive Lloyd or Andrew Simons, are they actually taking a step beforehand or AB to lose because they can sense what the batsman's going to do? Or are they incredible at just having a first step? You know, what is it? Can we learn that sort of stuff? And we and we can eventually, but we're just not there yet. Makes sense. I mean, obviously, the main the main use of data is to get a couple of steps ahead of where you are and get a couple of steps ahead of the opposition, right? So for that, you need more data, you need more information so that you can infer more and obviously get better eventually. Uh, so before we wrap it up, we've got a quick rapid fire question. I mean, quick, quick rapid fire round, a um, few questions. Um, all right, so let me start with it. Um, best cricket game you've covered as a writer? Oh. Um, I mean, for me, the most important game I went to was probably Afghanistan's first game in the World Cup, the, the one-day World Cup. Uh, it's obviously not the best game I've covered um, <laughs> as a writer. Um, I suppose the Headingley test was ridiculous. In fact, I've been to a couple of Headingley tests. The, the Sri Lanka one uh, a couple of years earlier when Angela Matthews and Mahela pulled them back and then they took the wicket off the second last ball. Um and then I was at the World Cup final, wasn't I? That that is a hard one to overlook. Uh, the women's World Cup final as well, and in fact, the women's World Cup semi-final where Harmanpreet went mental. Um, I don't know if I have a great answer to that. I think I have been, you know, my job was to cover major tournaments and major series, and so I've seen some incredible cricket uh, over and over again. And I'm not sure I have a particular moment, but I've had so many moments that I've been lucky to be involved with. Um, so, best game you've been part of as an analyst, the other side of the boundary? Uh, well, I was there when um, Trinidad uh, chased, what did they need, 18 runs and over for 10 overs and beat us. Uh, I suppose that's a remarkable game, although it didn't feel like it. Uh, being with Scotland when they qualified for the World Cup yeah. was, yeah. you know, incredible moment. Um, it didn't, you know, we had a rough start to the tournament. We got ourselves behind and we started playing. We were probably playing close to the best 
cricket, well, you know, us, the Dutch and Irish were probably playing as good as each other by the end, but we weren't playing like that to begin with. So to to have that bit in the middle where we thought we were, we were going to go, we went into that tournament where everyone's saying we were the favourites and then it looked like we wouldn't qualify. To finally qualify and play our best cricket in the last couple of games was uh, probably the best. But my first win with St. Lucia was, you know, I think we my first five games as an analyst, we lost. And there's a certain point of, they didn't win last year. They might not win this year. I might go an entire season of not winning. And then I suppose the most heartbreaking one was, uh, you know, being the analyst for uh, Melbourne Stars when they threw away the game against the Renegades that they should have won, which is, yeah, I, I'll never forget that. that it, from an analyst's point of view, everything had gone exactly to my script. In that point. And then, yeah, and then it didn't. Um, so, yeah, there's there's a couple of answers for you anyway. Makes sense. Um, obviously, you've watched cricket for a long time, but who's your favourite cricketer of all time, if there's anyone? It's probably Bryce McGain. Um, uh, a bit like me, has a bit of a weird, you know, uh, backstory. Didn't, shouldn't really have ever made it as a test cricketer. Um, was playing, sec- you know, when he was in his late 20s, 28, 29, he was playing second 11 cricket, you know, and to go from that to playing for his country when he, and he shouldn't have been playing for his country because he probably hadn't recovered from his injury properly and then has the most spectacularly bad debut of any cricketer of all time. It was all, it's you know, it's an incredible thing that, uh, you know, following what happened with Bryce McGain and uh, he was the first cricketer I ever really bonded with as a professional. So, you know, I've looked, I've got a lot of favourite cricketers, but there's something special about Bryce McGain that I'll probably never let go. Right. Um, obviously, you've, you've, you've seen a lot of cricket also, but out of, say, the last 20 years, who would you say is the best batsman you've seen? That's 20 uh, years alone. Uh, well, Steve Smith's the best test matchman I've ever seen. Um, I ever seen? Yeah. I didn't see Bradman, so I don't know what Bradman was like day in, day out. Um, but Steve Smith is the best test matchman I've ever seen. Yeah. Um, you know, and Andre Russell and AB DeVries are probably the best short-form batsmen I've seen. I came in on the end of Viv Richards, though, so I never saw Viv Richards at full flow. But, yeah, I'd say... Um, I've, ne- I've certainly never seen anyone control a bowling attack like Steve Smith does. Um, and, uh, you know, and that's in an era where we had, we just came off a great batting era. And then his era, we had the big four and then Baba Azam as well. So we know what a great batsman looks like. And he's on our level so far above everyone else that it's ridiculous. Makes sense. Um, coming to the bowlers, you've obviously got the big four right now. You've got Bumbra, you've got Cummins, you've got Archer, you've got Rabada. Who do you enjoy watching the most out of them four? Oh, enjoy watching the most. Um, so who who'd you put in your big four? You got Rabada, Cummins. Archer and Bumrah. Maybe Archer? You've got Bumrah. Yeah, I, Archer. His ability to speed up and speed down and be a completely different bowler means that he's unlike almost anything we've ever seen. Cummins is brilliant, but I'm not sure if Cummins does anything better than what Ryan Harris did. Um, Rabada, I think, is a great, great bowler, and Boomer is a great bowler, but I'm not sure I enjoy them. I generally don't enjoy that very fast bowlers. <laughs> I like Vernon Philander and Muhammad Asif and Stuart Clark and Muhammad Abbas and those sorts of guys. They're the ones I find endlessly fascinating. And I think that because Archer can do that, you know, when he took that, that whatever was it, five or six for at Headingley, 
um, by bowling 83 miles an hour. And you're just like, I'm not sure Cummins or Boomerah or Rabada is on that level. They might all end up with more wickets than him, but from an enjoyment thing, the fact that he can bowl 100 miles an hour and hit someone in the head and then bowl 20 miles an hour less and be unplayable off the pitch is it's just, to me, that's endlessly fascinating. Um, and, uh, yeah, I just I find him an incredible character um, on and off the field. Um, but, yeah, I mean, they're all obviously great bowlers. You're not picking a dud there. I mean, I, you know, I'd probably, uh, if you if you're giving me, I'd just probably still pick Muhammad Abbas because I just think he's incredible. And Kemar Roach is another one I love watching as well. All right. Um, um, growing up, who did you enjoy listening to most? Sort of Richie Benno, Bill Laurie, or Tony Gregg? Do you know what? There's a commentator in Australia called Tim Lane who does who isn't very famous because he didn't do many um, overseas tours. But he was probably the commentator that I loved the most growing up. Um, I wouldn't say I've tried to emulate him, but he probably had the most profound uh, influence on me. Tony Gregg and Bill Laurie were never that important to me uh richie benno <laughs> i think he was a good commentator a very good commentator uh, but it's from a different era and i don't know i mean you listen to him at channel nine at the end and it just sounded weird but when he was talking about cricket he's still one of the best um uh he's talking about um i just did a big interview with asif kareem the kenyan bowler and if you go back and watch that footage you listen to richie benno talking about spin bowling and you're just like, this man is on another level. Just absolute brilliant um, thinker on the game. And, uh, yeah, so he, of those three, he was certainly my favourite. And finally, before we wrap it up, you've obviously been to a lot of different places to watch cricket and analyse cricket, do a lot of about, to, to do do a lot related to cricket. So which venue would you say is your favourite to go to till date? Yeah, I'm a bit bizarre in this sort of stuff. I think some of the grounds that I like, other people don't like as much. I I really like Pisara in in Sri Lanka, which is so embarrassing that the Sri Lankan cricket um, board don't even like it. Um, but it feels it feels like a club ground where when it gets it doesn't need a lot of people to feel like it's alive. It's a living, breathing cricket ground. Um, I grew up in the MCG, so that's my my ground, um, and that's how I feel that you know um, some. I, I just love it. Um, Trent Bridge has always been a favourite of mine. Uh, Eden Gardens, I suppose, because it's another MCG-like uh, place. Uh, so yeah, I suppose those are those are some of my favourite places to go. But I've I've been to cricket in so many different places, and I, I yeah, it's a it's a hard one for me to answer. But I'd love to be able to watch another Test match in Pisara and. Um, I'd love to go to Eden Gardens. Uh, I've never done Eden Gardens for a test match. I've only been there for T20 games, I think. Um, so I'd love to go there for a test match as well, if, uh, if that was possible. Um, and, uh, and I've never been to Pakistan, so I'd love to cover all of the Pakistani grounds as well. All right. Um, thanks a lot, Jared. It was an absolute pleasure having you on, on our show. And thanks so much for taking time. And please do like, share to us. Do like, share, subscribe to our channel. And I hope you guys had really good fun listening to us. And thank you so much, Jared, once again. No problems. Thanks, mate. Thank you. Cheers, mate. I better go. I'll talk to you soon. Bye. Thank you.